0: You're now listening to the Live Different Podcast with Matt Wilson. Hello everybody and welcome to the Live Different Podcast. I'm your host Matt Wilson and today we are here with a very special guest, Gary Arndt. Gary is a travel blogger from everything, everywhere and he is also a podcast host who has traveled to seven different continents, 175 different countries and what I thought was really uh, really coolest about all the places that you gone are all the national parks and uh, park park service areas I think as as they call them throughout the United States so over 125 of those um, so I am really excited here of course about travels uh, but then about photography as well well Gary you've run all sorts of awards uh for your travel photography you have desktop backgrounds that are absolutely amazing and uh i'm just looking forward to hearing your story and hearing where you got today taking off in 2007 and traveling for nine years that is uh that's quite a feat gary Well, thanks and thanks for having me on the show yeah you got it you got it um I'd love to just kind of hear where, where you got your, your start,, um, especially, especially business-wise. It sounded like uh, you've always had a business mind and uh, mind and you've always liked the Internet, and uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that and, and hear your story.
1: Well, I graduated college uh, back in 1991. And that was right after that was kind of when the internet became a thing. It's when the World Wide Web was developed. And I uh, went to school in the Twin Cities in Minnesota. And then I went back home to Wisconsin for a couple of years, coached a high school debate team. uh, And then I moved back up to uh, Minneapolis. And my college roommate at the time said, yeah, you can make like $20 an hour programming. You should come and do it. And I had a degree in uh, mathematics, so... I wasn't really intimidated by the concept of writing code. And while this was happening, uh, my, my roommate's brother was teaching a class at the local science museum about this thing called the World Wide Web. And this was back before Netscape was even a browser, right? Wow. So this is the NCSA Mosaic days. Um, and he told his brothers, like, you know what you should do? You should m- make a program to make it easy to hook up a database to the web because at the time there was no Linux, there was no PHP, there was no MySQL. You had, uh, most websites were run on Spark workstations by Sun, which were like $20,000. You had to buy a copy of Oracle, which was ridiculous. <laughs> uh, and all of the, the coding to hook up a database to, the, the, to a website had to be done with Perl scripting, which you almost never ever hear about today. And so he said, well, you should, you should make it as easy to hook up a database as it is to write HTML. So make like a markup language. And you should do it on this new operating system that's gonna be the next big thing called Windows NT. Because that didn't exist either. Wow. And Windows 95 didn't exist either because this is before Windows 95. So he, he began doing this and the product. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of a product called Cold Fusion. it's now owned by Adobe. But he, he built that. And he had companies coming to him saying, well, could you build a, a website for our company using this product? And he didn't want to do that. He just wanted to focus on the tool. And so he said to me, he said, well, Gary, do you want to do, do this? So I was like, sure. So I began doing these data-driven websites, which now is no big deal. Everything WordPress is all done via databases. But um, I began doing this, and eventually more companies wanted me to do it for them, and so I hired one of my friends who had a friend, and four years later, I had a company with 50 people. And I sold that to uh, what became the, the consulting wing of British Telecom, and uh, I was 28 years old. So that's, I, I managed to sell before the dot-com bubble burst, and started a network of video game websites. I went back to school studied geology and geophysics for two and a half years, and I reached a point where I didn't quite know what to do with my life. Um, The the business climate in Minneapolis at the time was not really great for startups, uh, especially if you tried to raise money. I was an investor in one company. We tried to do that, and it was just a disaster. And uh, after I had sold my company back in uh, 1998, the company I sold it to had offices all over the world. And I convinced them to send me on a worldwide tour to all their various offices to talk about web application development. And so in January of 1999, I went off on a three-week whirlwind tour around the world where I went to uh, Tokyo, Taipei, Singapore, Paris, Frankfurt, Brussels, and London. And that was the first time I had ever really been anywhere. So I'm in my late 20s and the first time I ever really left the United States, not including Canada, and uh, I really kind of got the bug for it. And when I was thinking what to do with my life, this is back in 2005, I was like, well, I like to travel. And at the time, I, I still do. I have one of the largest collections of National Geographic in the world. I was like, well, I catch the idea of selling my home and traveling around the world. And I thought I would travel around the world for a year or two. And two years passed and it became three and it became four and then next thing you know it's it's just something that kind of became my livelihood and it's something i'm still doing today and a couple months ago i finally slowed down a little bit i got an apartment i had been traveling full-time for almost nine years but um, now i just have a place to go between trips so this year i was in india a couple weeks ago Uh, two weeks from now i'll be in ethiopia i'll be going to serbia I'll be doing a trip this summer to um, Central Asia. I'll be going to Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan. Uh, I'll be doing a long trip in Alaska to visit some of the national parks there. And uh, don't really know what I'll be doing later in the year, but still traveling a lot.
0: Wow, that that sounds amazing. And Gary, if you could bring us back to your your mid-20s when you were probably you probably had just locked yourself in a room with up to 50 other people and, uh, and were just coding all of the time. Is, is that correct? Can, can you kind of give us the, uh, the, the difference in your lifestyle between then and, and now?
1: You know, I actually wasn't doing a lot of coding. Uh, I would say most of the coding I did was in the first year when it was basically just me or me and a couple of my friends. As the company grew... I was in more of a managerial position trying to secure lines of credit, office space, equipment, you know, all that stuff and sales, which is of course the biggest thing uh, being on sales calls. So I wasn't actually doing a lot of coding. Uh, It's very difficult to be doing the actual coding and run a company because there's so many other things that have to be done business wise. And you have to remember that today, you have podcasts and websites, and there's all sorts of tools and resources and mentors available if you want to run a business. Back then, there was nothing. I mean, there was literally nothing. And I it was all just kind of figure it out as you go along. So I hired some people, and then someone like, well, you we have to pay taxes. So I was like, oh, okay, how do I do that? And then I found, okay, there are services where that will, they will handle your payroll, and they will handle that stuff for you. Um, And I was like, well, we need, we need more space. You know, we were working out of our our apartment originally. What do we do? So, you know, we, it was this iterative process of just learning all these things um, as you go along. And they're also, the the concept of like a lifestyle business didn't really exist either. I mean, it was a business business.
0: Sure. No, that, that definitely makes sense. And uh, that's cool to hear that you were explicitly focused on the business, the business, business, because you hear about so many of these, uh, you know, genius coders or, or people like a Matt Mullenweg from WordPress, or uh, I've even heard Kevin Rose say this on interviews from. From dig is that well they just wanted to get back to coding and they had built these large businesses but what they really like to do is code and uh, that gets away that gets away from them but as you said it's impossible I mean somebody's got to run the business and that's kind of that uh, that entrepreneurs dilemma uh, like you might read about in the e-myth or or something like that Um, so that's that's interesting to hear about Gary.
1: Well, I, have a, I had one guy who was a mentor to me. He kind of helped me sell my company and go through this whole process of negotiation, of which I knew nothing about. And, it, you know, he also, you know, his, he had a company that was, I don't know, it sold for over $100 million. And, you know, one of the things he talks about is that there are roles that certain people have in certain stages of a company. And I like the startup aspect of starting a business, like starting it from scratch. Anything I've ever done successfully in business, I've done with no funding. I've bootstrapped everything. Uh, No one else, you know, involved as a shareholder. Um, But you get a, a business up to a certain point where you have a staff that's big enough and you're bringing in a lot of revenue. And the skills I have in doing that, I don't think translate well to a company that's, you know, Millions of dollars in revenue or, or even larger and I have I have friends and I you know I've known other people that have grown very large businesses and I think where you see a lot of businesses fail is that you have maybe a founder who Did a very good job of starting and growing that company, but it gets to a certain point and it requires a different skill set That's out of their control
0: No, I, I, I think that definitely makes sense uh, and what made you successful to this Day is not necessarily what's gonna make a company successful for the next you know, two, three, five, 10 years. So that's, that's cool that you had the foresight to see it. And then uh, why did you decide to give it up or sell it or cash
1: out? Um, because starting a consulting firm wasn't something that I grew up saying, man, I wanna start a consulting firm. It was something that just kinda of happened. I was at the right place in the right time and, and circumstances were such that I was able to grow it. And when the opportunity to uh to sell it came about, I felt first of all, I I think everybody at the time, if if even if they didn't explicitly say it, kind of knew that valuations of internet companies were ridiculous. So being able to uh exit before there was a, a downturn in the market was something I wanted to do. And I just wanted to do other things. Um, now that- the, the constant sales cycle and having to deal with clients is not something that I was really into. So being able to do something else and uh, start other companies was uh, something I wanted to do. So that was the opportunity. Sure.
0: No, that makes sense. There are so few Mark Zuckerbergs that can start with this vision and get it off the ground in their dorm room or the, you know, or the the you even you see Steve Jobs but well of course he had a uh, a long period where he was not with Apple and you know the Bill Gates of course uh, even at some point yeah sure he's the richest man in the world but does that mean he's gonna be able to get Microsoft to the next level or is he going to even want to do that is that his greatest impact on the world Well. No, clearly no, because I, I certainly think he's making a better uh, impact on the world with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, but it, anyway, what I wanted to to um, really, really ask you about, Gary, was, you know, there is a huge myth out there that you need to be wealthy or you need to be rich to go out and travel or to do what you do what you have been able to do. You have to sell your company at 28 and be this whiz kid or,
1: or whatever. But can you, can you dispel that for us? Money helps. That's, that's undeniable. However, uh, and I probably had more than most people when I started traveling because I sold my house, I sold a business. But I've met a great many people who have been traveling for roughly $1,000 a month. So that's like 12000 a year. And quite frankly, if you don't move around a lot, if you stay in one place, it can be even cheaper than that, uh, sometimes much cheaper. So, for example, you could get a an okay place in Thailand for like $200 a month. You get a really nice place for maybe four to $500 a month, which is way less than what you'd be paying, you know, in the U.S., or anywhere in Europe. Uh, And food is proportionally just as cheap as well. So yeah, it can be done quite cheap. The The reason why people think it's expensive is because what they see advertised to them are usually package tours that have flights and, you know, you're staying at chain hotels and things like that. And yeah, if you do that, you're going to spend a lot of money. Uh, it's primarily traveling to Europe or other expensive places that you see advertised. And that's where people get the impression that it's so expensive. But if if you travel to places which are less expensive and you're willing to not stay in a luxury property, uh, then you can get by extremely cheap. Sure. Absolutely. And if, yeah, if you only have a week or
0: two to go away and you're you're tied into a contract and a a mortgage and everything else that comes with our our Westernized life our Western lifestyles, sure. Well, then it's your travel is going to come at a premium. But if you have that flexibility to be able to go to Southeast Asia and find a place that's way off the beaten path, absolutely, absolutely, you can do it. Gary, if you started traveling in 2007. When did you, you were, uh, I would assume that you were ahead of the game on this kind of uh, digital nomad, uh, as they call it. Um, These, you know, people who are just traveling Mm -hmm. around the world and working from their laptop, and you'll find them in places like Chiang Mai, China, or Chiang Mai, China, Chiang Mai, uh, Thailand, um, or, Mm -hmm. you know, places like that. Um, When did you start to see those people kind of pop up, people that were working from
1: their laptops and coffee shops? Um, The whole Chiang Mai thing, I think, took off like in 2010, 2011. And I actually passed through Chiang Mai before there was this big expat population there. So I never really encountered that. Um, that, That's, I think, when it started. I mean, I think the the thing that really started it was the four-hour work week, and I actually started traveling before the 4-Hour week even came out, uh, to give you an idea of when I was doing this. So I, I, I think it kind of started really picking up steam around 2010 and 11, and it's been getting stronger since. Just to give you an idea, when I started in 2007, uh, so I started in March 13th, 2007, that was in the, the window between when the iPhone was announced and when it was released. So there were no... Wow. You know, iPhones, there were no smartphones at the time. Uh, I remember carrying around this weird key fob type thing to let me know if there was Wi-Fi in the area, which I ended up throwing that away. I remember okay. those I things. I forgot yeah. all about those. Um, Wi-Fi was, it was actually more prevalent than I thought it would be, um, even back in 2007. But it's, it's far more common now. Uh, not to mention SIM cards which were very difficult to get back then. I can drop into any country now and, and you know, for a couple bucks get a SIM card at the airport and now I have mobile data pretty much anywhere I go. Uh, my phone is with T-Mobile, which has roaming in most countries in the world. So it's changed a lot uh, in the ability to get online and then the tools that are available. You know, that's the, the real amazing thing. I, so after I sold my consulting firm, we started a business which was a uh, network of video game sites and at our peak, we were doing, like, 50 million page views a month across our network, which is a lot. That's a lot and of views. <clears throat> so the, the system we had to host a lot of this, and not everything was hosted by us, but we had a single rack at a server facility here in Minneapolis. And we had, um, it was all running on FreeBSD, MySQL, PHP, all open source stuff. And in the same room as us was the Shop NBC servers, and they had, like, three rows of racks of servers. And we were in – and I think that the the guy who's running the facility told us that we were doing more traffic in our one little thing – than they were. But even getting, you know, having to host everything and buying the equipment and buying all the computers. I remember buying all these pizza box servers and everything. Now you could do the same thing uh, without doing any of that, right? Because with, uh, you know, what Amazon's doing uh, with their cloud system and just all the WordPress hosting sites and everything, it's become so easy that you can, you know, uh, host very popular websites for very, very little money. So. It's not just that the communication tools and living abroad has become easy, but the tools that are available have become easy and cheap, in some cases really, really cheap to be able to do pretty sophisticated things
0: no that that definitely makes a, makes a lot of sense, and just the access to information that that we have, like you said, you know this was be pre four hour work week or this was pre um yeah, pre iPhone. I mean, that is that is crazy. I remember the the four hour work week came out, and uh, right around right around just after the time that you started traveling, I think I picked it up um, around two thousand eight. It was right before my senior year of college, and. Um, yeah, it was just, and you read these stories and it was like, whoa, I can't believe that these people are doing this. This is, incri- th- this is incredible. But then just to think about the phone that I probably had in my pocket was also just,
1: just kind of hilarious at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think people need to at least reflect and realize how good things are right now. The, um, the connection I'm talking to you on right now, we're talking on Skype. I have a gigabit internet connection in my apartment. I pay $65 a month for it. That is a thousand megabits for those who don't know how fast it is. Um, And that's crazy. That is insane. Now, a lot of people don't have that in their, their cities yet, but within 10, 20 years, I think a lot of people will. And that's going to open up doors for a lot of things. And there's going to be more places around the world that have it. Right now, you can go to places in Scandinavia or in the Baltic countries. And I think Estonia was the first country to actually do an e-worker visa. So you can go and live there and, you know, have this fantastic bandwidth and do these amazing things. Wow, that's
0: really cool. Gary, I'm at, I didn't uh, mention this to you before we we, before we started talking, but um, I'm actually calling you from... Costa Rica on a 4G internet connection just because it's tethered off of my iPhone because I just know it's going to be more reliable than the Wi-Fi in Costa Rica. Yeah, you sound fine. At the the uh, the world is an amazing place. That is, that is for sure. Um, so I wanted to kind of go down the progression and, and just kind of ask you what your eyes were opened up to. Once you decided, okay, I sold this I sold this company, I'm going to start traveling, and then what you actually saw that made such an impact on you that you wanted to do this for, for nine years
1: of your life. Well, I should note that the difference between me and the digital nomad people is that I think they want to go and start a business and live overseas where things are cheaper and and use VAs and stuff that was that's never been my thing my business is travel i've always i've been doing this for so long because i like traveling so i'm always moving around and that's why i've been to so many different places and uh you know i've become a an award-winning photographer and whatnot Uh, but the biggest thing for me for traveling is learning that you're always learning something new everywhere you go. You're learning about their culture, you're learning about their history, you're learning about uh, all sorts of things, uh, dealing with you know science, whether you're visiting a national park or something, uh, or even things like uh, architecture. You know, I've, I've seen so many different buildings and I've learned so much about architectural techniques dating back in time and of modern architects uh, that it's amazing. So the reason I travel and the reason I continue traveling is because it's an opportunity to learn.
0: Okay, that, that definitely makes a lot of sense, um, Gary. I came across your guest blog post uh, on Tim Ferriss's for our Work Week website. Twenty things I've learned from traveling around the world, and it's funny I'd read this. You know, I I read Tim Ferriss's first book in you know two thousand eight when it came out, or two thousand seven whenever it was. And I've, I've read this post, I mean, years ago, I don't even know what the date on it, uh, on it is, uh, maybe 2010 or, or something like that, but you said two really interesting things, and they kind of go hand in hand, uh, that the media lies, and that the world is boring, and it's something that we talk about a lot on the Live Different podcast, because there's just so many things that have been put into our heads. Uh, by our parents or our teachers or our government or by advertisers, et cetera, et cetera, who are usually doing the best that they can with, with the tools that they have. Uh, not in all cases, but I, I'd love to hear a little bit more um, about your thoughts on you know, seeing so many places around the world and just thinking what we hear on the media is, is a bunch of crap
1: and uh, the world actually isn't such a dangerous place. Um, yeah, first, a quick humble brag. That article I wrote for Tim Ferriss is actually, I think, the most shared article that has ever appeared on his website. He that is, he sent is pretty email impressive. Last year, and he listed like the top three most shared posts, and, and mine was number one. So I got that going for me. That's but, pretty cool. In, uh, in a lot of our <laughs> listeners' books, I think that's pretty cool. So uh, let me address the second one, the world is boring. What I mean by that is, you know, most people get up, They eat, they work, they raise their kids, they go back to bed. And if you think that, you know, most people think where they grew up, their hometown is boring. It probably is. And that's that's true for everybody, right? No matter where you live, you may have something cool in your hometown, but you're just used to it because it was there. And I remember being in Cambodia and we're going around Angkor Wat and there are people who live there in Angkor Wat, like right next to these crumbling temples. And when they put their laundry out, they dry it against the temples. And that's just their life. They don't think it's that big of a deal. They're not in awe every day of these temples because they've seen it every day of their life. And that's what most of the world is. And when I say the media lies, we only hear about places if something bad happens. So just tell me the first thing that pops into your head when I say the following countries. (laughs) Colombia. Ah. that's the one that came to mind because I, I just got back from there two days ago, but Pablo Escobar. But most people would think, yeah, they think drug lords, right? Hasn't been that way for almost 30 years, but that's what people think of. Ethiopia, a lot of people think of famine. And again, that was ages ago. And, but that's the, nothing's happened there that has you know, warranted news, so that, that's all people know. Um, Serbia, there was a war there in the 90s 20 years ago, but... Since then, nothing, and so people, that's their last image is a place of war. So most places in the world, if you've heard of it at all, you have a negative connotation with it because that's all the media tells you. Uh, And even then, we tend to equivocate entire countries. So for example, uh, a couple years ago when there was a bombing in Boston during the Boston Marathon, you probably remember that. Sure. If If you had called someone in Los Angeles and said, hey, I was just checking to see if you're all right, there was a bombing in the United States. Um, they would probably think you were crazy, right? Because Los Los Angeles are in different... And we know that if you're American or if you've been to the United States, you know that, right? So we know these are different things. But when we hear that there's uh, violence with drug lords happening in Mexico, there are people that cancel trips to Cancun, even though that stuff is happening in the north a thousand miles away. There were people canceling trips because of the Ebola virus, in Sierra Leone to South Africa. And just to give you a sense of scale, Sierra Leone is closer to London than it is to Johannesburg. But they were canceling trips because it was all just Africa to them. Sure. Right? And that ignorance, plus the fact that the media only tells us bad things, um, you know, I think goes in real well with the other one, is that the world's actually quite boring. You know, if I, if, if you were to, if I was to say, you know, yeah, I'm going to Iran, or I'm sorry, Iraq, you'd probably think I was insane. It's dangerous. It's terrorists. things like that. Well, I'm not saying I'm actually going to go to Baghdad or anything like that, but there are actually parts of Iraq you can go to that's actually quite safe uh, because it's a big place, you know, and what happens in one place is not necessarily the same as the others. And I've had the, I don't know if you call it fortune or misfortune, of being in places where newsworthy things happen. I was in Bangkok during the 2010 Uh, protests and I was actually you know photographing protesters and I was also in East Timor uh, during the 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 day that there was an assassination attempt on the president and the Prime Minister and I remember leaving East Timor I flew to northern Australia and following this uh, story on the news and what I what I saw is that almost nobody filing the stories was was in East Timor In fact, they were often in, like, Jakarta or Kuala Lumpur, which is really, really far away. It would be like reporting on something happening in New York, uh, you know, asking someone in Mexico City. Wow. And this kind of stuff happens all the time. You know, the media, they want people to tune in, and the easiest way to do that is to scare you. And so they will always, you know, engage in fear-mongering to try to jack up their ratings.
0: No, that that definitely makes sense because you want to, uh, yeah. Every everybody needs a little bit of excitement on their in their life because the world is a boring place, and so then we just get sucked right in, and uh, a, and that's how terrorism works. It, it, I mean, it is trying to instill terror in people. And uh, that's when you get things like the Boston bombing and people from, you know, your relatives and who knows where they live are calling and saying, are you okay? Are you okay? We heard about uh, terrible, terrible bombings in the United States. Well, yeah, it was 3,000 miles away. It, It doesn't make any sense.
1: And I should add, you know, boring does not necessarily mean it's not interesting. There's a lot of interesting stuff all over the place. Um, that just doesn't mean that there's dramatic newsworthy things happening all the time. You know, it's just the the daily routine of life happens all over the world. But there's lots of interesting things to do, especially if you've never been to a place before.
0: Sure, absolutely. I mean, and life in general is all about what you make it. You're you're talking about how you love to travel and, and learn things. Well, there are some people who don't like to learn and they like to have their normal, boring life. And, and that's okay, that, that's okay too. But uh, yeah, it, it is what you make out of it. And if you wanna learn things, I mean, there are an infinite number of things to learn and, and be interested in, I think.
1: Yeah, which is, goes back to what I said before about travel ultimately being educational.
0: Sure, sure, now that that makes perfect sense. Um, Gary, I wanted to ask you for people out there who are interested in becoming travel bloggers themselves and uh, and growing their following and um, becoming uh, become the, becoming the next Gary Arndt. Do you have any advice for him?
1: Yeah. Uh, it is a very difficult thing to do. Travel is an incredibly oversaturated market right now because there's a lot of people who envision that, oh, I'm going to start a travel website, and I'm going to become the next Anthony Bourdain, and that's going to pay for my travels. Uh, there was a case of one guy who the IRS, he tried to d- declare everything on his trip as a tax write-off, and his his website, got del- he deleted it a couple times, and... It was just a joke. He didn't take it seriously. He didn't make any money. And the IRS called him on it and said, no, none of this is, is a tax write-off. The biggest thing with, with anything online is building an audience. And building an audience takes time. It's very difficult. And in travel, uh, if, you, you know, if you look at a lot of the things that are popular online, if you're a fashion blogger, uh, basically, if you're good looking, you have someone else taking good photos, you, know, you wear clothes, you can achieve success that way. Quite quickly, Um, someone who like a PewDiePie on YouTube who plays video games—you just have to play video games—and it still may take time to, to grow an audience. But with travel, you have to actually go out and do it, which costs money. Doesn't have to cost a ton, but it does cost money, and it takes a lot of time. And what I see a lot of people do is the first. There's a couple places in the world that are. There's nothing wrong with these places, but everybody goes there. You know, Chiang Mai being one, and. The world just doesn't need another backpacker talking about traveling to Thailand because it's been done to death. Sure. You have to do something interesting. So one of the things I did, and there was nothing strategic about this. It was just an accident. When I started, my first six months of traveling was island hopping through the Pacific Ocean. So I was in Tahiti, the Cook Islands, Easter Island, Fiji, Samoa, Tonga, Vanuatu, the Solomons, Uh, Micronesia, Micronesia, Marshall Islands, Palau, places like that that most people, they probably haven't heard of and certainly haven't been there. So I began doing something that was kind of off the, you know, uh, different and interesting. And there's too many people that get started and they just go to the same places everybody else goes. And that's always a killer. And I think you just have to have a really strong travel resume which takes time in, in many cases, years. And then you also have to be good at what you do. So in my case, I made the decision to focus on still photography. And I went from literally knowing nothing. I bought my first camera uh, days before I set out on my trip uh, to having one travel photographer of the year in North America three times. And that's all within a decade by just focusing on uh, producing high quality content. Wow, that's, that, that's really cool to hear. Just
0: that, uh, some, yeah, that someone can just go out and start from scratch and, and educate themselves about how to do it. But I think that, it, that you're 100% right about doing something interesting and doing something, and, and it doesn't matter what kind of business you're trying to start. Everybody's just trying to make a copy of everybody else these days, and nobody's actually doing anything interesting. And so, if you actually, you know, if you're actually innovative about your approach, um, that I mean, that's that's half the battle, I, I think. And that's where I mean, you, you're you're an artist now. You are travel photography uh, fa- travel photographer of the year. Uh, so you're an acclaimed artist, so you have to be doing something creative, inherently creative to, I mean, I'm, I'm just looking at your Instagram followers, and, you know, you didn't get 151,000 followers just by taking the same old boring pictures that everybody else has, has seen a 100 times over.
1: Well, it's not just that, but there's a wide diversity of places and types of photos that I'm posting from. Uh, which I think has a lot to do with it. But yeah, I see so, so many people that are just doing the same thing. They're doing nothing to set themselves apart from the crowd. In fact, they do the opposite. They do what everyone else does. And if there's any, uh, you know, in terms of least media online, whether it's a podcast, a blog, or whatever, the sure path to failure is to do what everybody else is doing. I've been interviewed by so many people that, so you're familiar with like Entrepreneur on Fire? Sure, sure. Yeah, I've been on uh, John Lee Dumas' podcast before. I've been on like three or four Entrepreneur on Fire Fire ripoff podcasts. Same format, same length of time. So like what we're doing right now, he has a pretty set list of questions. Boom, 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 you you do them and you're done. And uh, that's enabled him to do it on a daily basis, which is a large part of his success. But having a free-form open discussion like this, very few podcasters do it because it takes more time. And it's a bit more difficult. Um, but all of these podcasts that I have been on that are basically doing the same thing that he did, I don't think any of them achieved any real success or a big audience.
0: No, I mean, I can totally, I can totally imagine if it's the same thing over and over. That's why you look at a, a podcaster like Joe Rogan, who does three-hour-long podcasts almost every single day, and has totally open forum conversations. I mean, that's really, really difficult to do. But he has a huge, huge following. And sure, there's a lot to be said about um, about entrepreneur on fire and and having a thousand. Uh, he has he's published over a thousand episodes so far. And yeah, that's going to be a lot of content out there on the media and it's a, it, or in uh, on the internet. And that's a lot of uh, just churning out content and seo and anytime anybody googles any of those people he's gonna come up pretty highly and uh there's a lot of different strategies of course that he's employing and and he does it well but yeah just trying to rip off what he is doing uh that's it just doesn't it just doesn't seem like you're not actually adding any real value out into the world if you're just making a copy of
1: what's already being done Right. And I, you know, I think that's a a really important thing. Everybody I can think of that's had a great deal of success has done something unique or they've put a unique twist on whatever it is they're doing. Again, to separate them from from everyone else. And it could be like, okay, I'm just going to do it, but I'm going to be more funny or I'm going to be, you know, a bit more clever or whatever. But you need to have an individual stamp on it. And If you're just copying what other people are doing, and I I see that so often, uh, you're not going to have success, I don't think.
0: No, I I completely agree. And especially when it comes to to podcasting, the reason that I like to do this is I want to build relationships with all of these interesting people and learn from them myself and be able to uh, give this access to the people who who, who listen or, or read my stuff. So now they have uh, access to someone like Gary and it's a, it's just a good genuine conversation. It's not like, uh, yeah, sure. I, I wrote some, down some things that I wanted to ask you, of course, that I thought might be interesting speaking points, but no, of course, obviously this is, this is not canned. Uh, so yeah, no, I, I really appreciate that, Gary. Thank you. John, so, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, okay. So do something interesting. I think that is a great way just for people to to live their life um in general and um i was wondering if you had any advice uh for people just on just on travel in general not if they want to um not not necessarily if they want to you know quit their jobs and and just go for the next nine years and and travel but just general travel tips, if you have any. Um, I'm sure that, that you get this questioned a lot, but uh, people do love this kind of stuff. So, so I will ask you, if you just have general travel tips in, uh, overall.
1: The biggest thing is to pull the trigger and go. And a lot of times when people travel, they put way too much emphasis into planning. And the concept of just getting a ticket and going somewhere is completely alien to them. And I really think people should try it at some point. You know, get a plane ticket, maybe get a hotel room for the first night, and then just wing it. And I think what you'll find is that things aren't necessarily going to go bad. That things will actually be just fine. And I think that the, you know, one of my one of big mantras is that the ability to adapt is more important than the ability to plan. And most of the cool things that have happened to me traveling have occurred spontaneously or there were things that I could never have planned. It just kind of happened. Uh, but if someone is, is wanting to travel, they just have to uh, make the decision and do it. And it really doesn't need to take more than buying a, a plane ticket maybe having a passport.
0: That is a, that is a heck of a place to start. Uh, that I've,
1: a- I've many times landed in a city with no place to stay. I dare say the majority of times that's how it's happened. And I can pull up my phone and I go to like Hotels.com or something and just see what's available and I get, you know, find something cheap uh, near the airport maybe or or near some attraction that I'm going to be visiting and uh, I'll book it online after I land and by the time I arrive, you know, they're waiting for me and uh, I'll I'll book it for one or two nights and then I'll use that time while I'm there to figure out what I'm going to do. I'll plan, you know, my strategy from, from there on out. But if you want to travel you and i think a lot of people don't realize just how easy it is i can say some exotic location like palau which most people probably have no idea where it is that you can go online right now you could pause this podcast buy a plane ticket within 5 minutes and be there you know whenever the, whenever the flight leaves and this place you've never heard of there are flights there there are flights to djibouti there are flights to Lesotho. There's, I mean, you can get to all of these places pretty much. Uh, it's just a matter of doing it. Now you may not know anything about this place, and that's why people don't think about going there. But it certainly can be done.
0: That's that's really great advice, Gary. And um, I appreciate that you know so many little off the beaten. And- Path places, so many of which that I have never even heard of, and um, I I wanted to ask you. You had read, you had written somewhere. It might have been in that same Tim Ferriss article. I, I can't quite remember, uh, but you talked about uh, Westernization versus modernization, and I, you know, I live in, I live in Central America. I live in Costa Rica, and. you know, I just got back from from Colombia, and uh, when I go to these places, a lot of times I see the uh, the culture, how the our uh, call it North American culture has crept, started to creep everywhere. And granted, I like to go off the beaten path, yes, but it's not like I'm going to little tiny remote villages all of the time. Yes, I did go to uh, this place, Palenque, where it was the first, you know, first African slave village, um, first free village in all of all of the Americas, right, and I was expecting it to look like I don't know, Williamsburg, Virginia or, uh, or Gettysburg or somewhere with a bunch of, they were going to put on like a huge exposition. And no, it wasn't that. It was just like going into a very, very poor village and sitting in these people's ha- home and hearing about their traditions and their own religion and all this cool stuff, of course, right? But they didn't even have, they had some globalization. They had some westernization that had come into their culture, but they didn't even have Modernization. I mean, yeah, sure, I guess they had a computer. I mean, it looked like a, it was definitely old, but you know, he could pull up his emails or whatever. But I always struggle with this concept between westernization and the globalization of, of everywhere, um, yet not seeing, okay, these people have running water and they have Wi-Fi. let' let's see that as a good thing, um, because sometimes I go to places and I say, "Oh, I, I wish this wasn't so." modern or I wish this wasn't so, uh, Americanized as the word we like to throw around so much. So I'm, I'm curious on your take on that, Gary.
1: Well, let me ask you a question. Do you think diversity is a good thing?
0: Do I think diversity is a good Just thing? Just in general. I, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's a good thing. I, my point of view, I guess, is that we all need to learn about one another. So I think that's very important. So if it's, uh, you know, diverse ethnically or with gender or however else you want to count diversity,
1: sure. What I'm trying to say, yes, would have been suffice. But so my point is we, we often think of terms of we, people in the West, I'm primarily talking maybe the United States or Europe, being able to access other cultures. We can go out for different types of food. We can go out for Thai food, Ethiopian food, whatever. But when, if it's good for us, shouldn't it be good for everybody? So if you're in Thailand and you're Thai, can you go out for Mexican food or Italian food or a hamburger? And we get bent out of shape when a McDonald's opens somewhere, thinking, oh my God, this is the end, it's gonna destroy their culture. and to put this into perspective, if you combine all the McDonald's, Burger Kings, Wendy's and KFC's in the United States, okay, that, that's, that's a lot of restaurants. There are more Chinese restaurants than there are those combined. Is wow. that threatening our culture? No. Because that's way more than McDonald's in China, I'll, you know, I'll tell you that. So why is it that a McDonald's in another country is destroying their culture? In fact, if someone was to say Chinese restaurants were destroying American culture, you'd probably call them a racist or something, right? Um, and there's all sorts of cases. If you do some reading about you know, Westerners coming in, I remember one story of this woman in Mexico being chided for having spaghetti. And you know, her guest was like, no, you're Mexican, you have to eat Mexican food. And that as we travel, we view everyone as living in this cultural zoo that we get to visit to see them doing their cultural thing not forgetting that they're also living and they should be able to get the benefits of going out for a different cuisine some night or listening to music or watching movies from different countries as well, Uh, which is why I don't think that the establishment of a McDonald's or things like that necessarily is a threat to culture and especially when you look at how McDonald's is presented. Everybody knows it's an American restaurant. It's a Western restaurant. And when a lot of people go out, uh, especially in places, I remember uh, going to a KFC in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. And I went there just because I had to see it, because it was <laughs> the only fast food restaurant in Cambodia at the time. And I just wanted to check it out. And it was something I had learned visiting these kind of places in in developing countries, their perception of those restaurants is very different than our perception because we view McDonald's and fast food as the lowest rung of the dining ladder, right? It's not high quality, it's fast, it's bad for you, et cetera. But in a place like Cambodia, it's not as if they're eating there every day. In fact, most people can't afford to eat there every day. And when they do go, it's usually for a celebration because it's the only place that people will wait on you. It's clean. There are restrooms available. And so it's a popular place to go for like a kid's birthday party. You may only go once a year. So their perception of it is totally different than our perception of it. But we take our way of thinking and say everyone has to live by those rules because we think fast food is stupid. It has to be stupid for everybody. When that's not how they're perceiving it. It's not their everyday meal. And that's basically why I think there's a difference between westernization and globalization. Japan is a very modern country. Every technical thing you can think of is in Japan. They've got, you know, phones, computers, everything else. But when you go there, you can't help but walk away and realize it is not a Western country. It is very much Japanese, but they've modernized Japanese culture. Um, Things that may seem very strange to us, like uh, the whole cosplay environment and the Hello Kitty stuff and things like that. Uh, J-pop, Japanese pop music is its own particular thing. It's modern, but it's Japanese. You'll see the same thing in South Korea, the same thing's developing in China right now, that we, we see elements of you know, what happens in our country, and we see it in other countries, and we say, oh, that's terrible, it's changing, as if you know, that's, we walk around, You know, no one in our country wears stovetop hats or bonnets anymore, right? That was our culture in the 19th century, but nobody does that anymore. Right. But we somehow expect the rest of the world to do that. I remember going to, New, uh, to Samoa, and this place I was staying at, this New Zealand woman was there, and she was so upset that people had televisions. Because in her mind, they were all living in grass huts still. And wow. it's like she, she wanted to travel in time, not travel in place. We live in the 21st century. There's internet. And mobile phones are everywhere. Every, everywhere. I mean, I've, I've been, I was, amazed. I was just in India a couple of weeks ago. I was astonished at how I could get 3G coverage anywhere I went. We were on back roads and farms. We'd get 3G coverage. And uh, in Africa, you'll see everybody has a cell phone. Everywhere in the world is that. And that's just the reality of traveling in the 21st century. And what they're doing with those phones are very different than what we may be doing with these phones. Um, You'll find that some social platforms are more popular in other countries. Um, There was a great article I read about how people in Burma are using cell phones and how they use Facebook. And it's different than how we may use Facebook. They're very stingy with data. They'll use it to uh, as, as both their email and as a news gathering tool and other things. And um, again, modern, but with their own cultural twist on it.
0: Sure. No, so anyway, I, I no. I think Brand. those are fant- no. <laughs> those are fantastic points, and that will uh, that that will definitely help me as I, you know, as I travel and I I think through of these things. The one issue that I always have with the McDonald's uh, right is a, is the corporatization of everywhere. I think it is what gets me where it's not unique and yes i know that you can walk into a mcdonald's and um in all different parts of the world and they adapt it culturally so that it sells well etc i get that um but to go through the world and go everywhere and see the golden arches well i'd personally i'd rather go to a place and this is in the western world or in the non-western world i'd like to i like to go to places where okay this is you know, supporting the mom and pop businesses and this is uh, here. I, I would much rather go to a place, um, I'm
1: trying to think of one off the top of my head. Well, there's but. nothing wrong with that and I think that's actually a good idea, uh, especially in developing countries to go and support local businesses, stay in local uh, bed and breakfasts or, or, or guest houses. That's a great idea. But the existence of McDonald's, one, you're probably not the target market for the McDonald's in Costa Rica. Also uh, correct. And two, again, the way people perceive McDonald's is very different, right? There isn't one on every street corner. There might be, I don't know, one or two in San Jose, and that's it? I'm just guessing. I don't know. Yeah, I
0: I don't actually know where. I know there's a Burger King uh, near. I know there's a Burger King near the airport. We have one to... uh, chain in town and it's a subway and it's hidden and but i would like the i would like the area of course to continue to get uh nicer right to to improve to become more clean to for the people to have better living conditions because i live in rural costa rica but you know i don't want to all of a sudden start to see all the corporate chains moving in i guess is is my point i would like to see people start businesses that you know that feed their families and that are ones that I would enjoy getting to but that grow local st- or you know that you know coffee beans roasted in the local areas etc which are the same kind of places that I like to go if I'm in New York in the lower east side or if I go to Austin Texas or or wherever else those are just the kind of places that that I like no, I, I guess I, really I, because they have more character is
1: really No what I completely I'm after. get it but you sure. also have to remember, as a tourist, a lot of people, one of their big complaints is, I didn't come this far to see the same stuff I could have seen at home, right? That's a, that's a general complaint a lot of tourists have. Sure. I didn't travel 2,000 miles to go to a McDonald's. I got a McDonald's where I live. And I get it. I'm not saying you should go to McDonald's. But by the same token, there's a lot of big stores that people in the U.S. or Europe they go to those stores for a reason. They like their products, and I'm not necessarily talking about restaurants. It could be a clothing store, uh, whatever. And many of those things carry over in other places as well. There's a lot of very high-end luxury brands that you'll see are extremely popular in China. Um, Bugari, um, Gucci, things like that. Because they're, they're, they're a status symbol, and a lot of people actually, quite frankly, buy them because they're Western right? For the same reason that people may uh, be attracted to something precisely because it's foreign from where you live. Um, and I don't like it, but, but going back to my original point, I just, I'm saying that the existence of these things does not necessarily uh, threaten a culture. And you also have to, again, think of yourself as a tourist, as a tourist, you may not want to see that. You may want to go to the local, you know, restaurant. And I, that is completely, completely valid. Um, but, you have to look at it from the person that lives there full time, they may wanna to go to a Chinese restaurant in Ethiopia or something else or eat spaghetti on occasion and they would want to get the benefits of diversity as well. And it, isn't, and it, it may bother us in that our trip isn't as authentic as we hoped it would be, but authenticity in the 21st century is not that simple. And people just don't live in cultural zoos for our enjoyment.
0: No, I, I completely, I completely agree. That's an amazing point. And uh, yeah, we could, uh, we, I definitely think we could talk about this, this for, for ages. Of course, um, but just, to, just another quick kind of aside. You know, we're traveling to, un, to. Truly understand a place, and as you said, not just for our cultural zoo entertainment. Because I want to take pictures of, of people and places, and that the world should be on display for us. Uh, for example, out just outside of the town where I live in Costa Rica, there's a place called Maxi Palí, and Maxi Palí is, basically, it is owned by Walmart, and. Uh, There's also, so, you know, in in the United States, a lot of people who can afford not to go to Walmart like to support the cause of not going to Walmart because they have certain gripes, blah, 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 with Walmart, right? But here, it's a shame. I think here it's a shame that the uh, cheap place to buy your groceries and cheap place to get your household goods is outside of town because the people who don't have cars can't afford to get can't afford to get there and have access to the cheaper household items. So, you know, it's a, it's a certain depth of understanding that only comes with, well, I think really with, a, with an
1: open mind, I think would be a, a fair thing well, to say. You know, you've hit on a good example. Um, there are two ways to raise standard of living. One, make more money. Two, uh, reduce the cost of things. And a lot of people forget that if you can buy things at a cheaper price, you are raising your standard of living. You can buy more with the same amount of money you're making. And I bet if that store, which is owned by Walmart, was called Walmart, people would object, right? They would protest it or whatever, but it's called something else so people don't care. And I've seen this all over Africa. There are places that are called Chinese stores. And uh, it's not a chain or anything, but basically they're just stores filled with products from China and oftentimes actually owned and operated by people from China. And they're very popular stores because people can let their income go much farther, and they can buy things like a television set or a dirt bike or, or whatever uh, that maybe they couldn't have afforded before. And that's a huge thing for these people. You know. And it, it's another paradox that people want everything to be you know, uh, authentic and cultural, And at the same time you said, well, would you support efforts to remove people from poverty? Everyone will say yes, yes, yes. But the problem is pretty much the culture of every place in the world, and that includes Europe and the United States and every Western country as well, is poverty. You know, 200 years ago, everybody was poor. Even if you were rich, you probably lived a life that you wouldn't want to live today, right? You had no running water, no hot water, no communications, things like that. Poverty's pretty much been the default state for humanity for thousands of years. And when you get out of that, uh, it's, that's gonna change the culture to some extent. You know, we, we may long for, oh, you know, people going to Cuba, it's gonna ruin Cuba, and they have all these 50 cars from the 1950s. Yeah, you know why they have cars from the 1950s? Because they can't afford new cars. Right. That's why. It's not like this cultural thing. There is a reason for it, and the reason is, Life wasn't that great, and I bet they would love to get new cars. And yeah. for us to say, you know, oh, you have to have these old cars because that's the culture and we want to take these pictures, I think is kind of, you know, people need to rethink that. Yeah, because we
0: suffocate, you know, we uh, Americans, the, American, the U.S. government suffocated them, and so they had, they're they back in time. Sure, it's, it's crazy, but, you know, and, and yeah, it would be nice to go there and, and take some beautiful photos but yeah, you have to understand the, the place that you're going or, or uh, the other paradox. Yeah, people have the gripe with Walmart, but now they're going to be one of the largest distributors, distributors of organic foods in the world where even rich people are going to be going to Walmart to buy their, their food now. So it's, a, yeah, the world is a paradoxical place. I would say that.
1: You know, and I, and I should also add, there are places where McDonald's has failed that the people there, they didn't want to eat McDonald's. There are places where Starbucks has failed. So I'm not necessarily just saying I'm pro these businesses to be for them. Um, my point again is is real simple. It's just that I, I think you can have them and still have whatever culture in the country that they're in, that's all.
0: Sure, absolutely. And it's easy for us to just look and say, because we come from educated Western backgrounds to say, oh God, Walmart is more, or, oh God, uh, Walmart or, or Starbucks or McDonald's is gonna move in and everybody's gonna go crazy for it. Look at these poor people who just love
1: to go to McDonald's. And then you know, we I think, that, Oh, I have a lot of very well-traveled friends uh, that I've met traveling and who also have travel blogs and such. And the more traveled people are, the far more nuanced they are about a lot of these issues. And a lot of the people who are really dogmatic about it are the ones who actually probably haven't traveled a whole lot. uh, That they, again, they've developed their views before actually visiting places and talking to a lot of people there. So I would definitely encourage people to, you know, have a real open mind. Because a lot of times when people travel, they're looking for things to confirm what they already believe. And it's a very difficult thing to come to the conclusion that you were wrong about something and when you travel, you are almost certainly going to do that. You're gonna realize you were wrong about something.
0: Gary, I think that is uh, that is the point. That is why I think of both of us uh, can agree that we do what we do to be able to do this and then, yeah, distribute it through media and share what we've learned and open up people's minds. Uh, so with that, I wanted to ask you if you had any imparting words of uh, advice for our listeners who want to be more open-minded.
1: You know, it, it's, if you want to be open-minded, it's exactly what I said. You have to always be willing to conclude that something you believed was wrong. And that is a very hard thing for most people to do. They will go through all sorts of, you know, mental gymnastics to justify to themselves uh, that they were right, rather than say that they were wrong. And when you travel, that—that's what I think. Having an open mind really is. And for most people, open-minded means I'm open-minded, and you're open-minded if you agree with me. And that's not the case.
0: Gary, this has been an awesome. Conversation. Your blog is everything-everywhere.com. Your Instagram is everything-everywhere. Anywhere else where people can find you online?
1: Uh, yeah, you might want to check out my Instagram account. I'm everything-everywhere on Instagram. Uh, that's probably where I put a lot of my effort right now, and uh, you can see my photography on a daily basis. I love it. That sounds good, Gary. Well, uh, I really
0: appreciate you taking out the time to uh, to talk to us and expand people's worldview. This has been a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, it's been great. And uh, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, of
0: course. Appreciate it. Hey, did you like today's episode? If you did, log on to iTunes and leave us a review. It would really help us out. We try to put out good free content all of the time check out the show notes on under30co.com. Send the podcast to a friend who could use some of the advice. And of course, if you want to travel with us, check out under30experiences.com and 50% off Athletic Greens on the show notes. Thanks for listening.